yeah. You can talk back to me today. It's good. I need it. You, I just got up and talked to you about money, so I'm going to need your verbal encouragement. <laughs> All right. So I've been thinking this week a little bit about grace. Actually, over the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking about this, this idea of grace, trying to reacquaint myself with, the, with this foundational Christian theological principle, this idea of grace. In some ways, grace is foundational, that this concept is foundational to the basis of what it means to be a Christian. It is, the, it is Christianity's great contribution to the world, I think, in some ways. This belief that at the center of the universe, at the center of everything, is a loving God who moves towards us before we ever do anything to deserve that. While the scriptures say, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, grace is a kind of startling idea. And it's one that we too easily, I think, forget from time to time. We forget about the grace of God. The great reformer, Martin Luther, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Martin Luther. He is the man who is almost single-handedly responsible for emphasizing this biblical teaching on grace. Martin Luther said this, for almost 20 years, uh, for almost 20 years, and I still feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal with God that I, that I may contribute something, so that uh, he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness, and I still cannot get into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. You see, even Martin Luther, the great teacher of grace, had this problem. He forgot about the grace of God. He, he, it was difficult for him to cling to it. You see, the odd thing about grace is though it is, prob- though it is probably the most central Christian idea, it is, the one, it is the one we talk about more than almost any other idea, we all, all of us, all human beings, have this kind of default setting that causes us to want to contribute something to this process. We want to earn God's love. We want to justify ourselves through our own effort, through our own striving, through our own works. We want to see ourselves as deserving, as worthy. And you see this all over the place in our culture. We invest religious fervor in almost every activity that we believe will help us measure up. We do this naturally. Just look at Christmas. Christmas is a great example, right? I don't even know if this happens anymore, but do any of you remember when, uh, I think, it, I think it, maybe it still happens, I just am not in the middle of it. But there's this phenomenon where every year there's a really popular toy and all of the parents go out and try to buy that toy for their child. And parents will go to Walmart or Target, or, and they will go to these places, and they will literally fight over the last Tickle Me Elmo or whatever it is, right? <laughs> LOL surprise, I guess, is what my daughter likes. Uh, why do parents do that? Why do they fight over toys? Or why did they fight over toys? You know, one of my favorite Christmas movies is Jingle All the Way. Is anybody familiar with Jingle All the Way? I still tell Ashley she's my number one customer sometimes. But uh, it's the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sinbad. Uh, That is like an hour and 45-minute meditation on the psyche of parents who fight over Christmas toys is basically what that movie is. You see, parents don't fight over Christmas toys because getting a rare or expensive toy for their kid is very important to their kid's mental health and well-being, right? That's not why they do it. They fight over Christmas toys because they want to justify themselves as good parents, right? This is about righteousness. This is about justification. This is about measuring up. And this is not just a phenomenon that we see at Christmas time, is it? This is, like I said, the default human setting that we all endure. 
It's like this deep religious impulse that lives within every one of us, which is why I think it can be so hard for us to remember the grace of God or to live in the midst of the reality of the grace of God. It's why even people I know who follow Jesus for a significant amount of time still slip into a kind of religious moralism, right? You see this from time to time. And forget that the Christian life is primarily, about, in the words of Martin Luther, about surrendering completely to sheer grace. It's what it is. The grace of God is something that comes towards us when we do not deserve it and transform us, transforms us in ways that we do not expect. This is what the grace of God is. And every time this happens, every time we experience grace, both in the practical nature of our lives and when we experience the grace of God, it is a little miracle. It is a miracle. I've been reading this book this week called Grace in Practice by uh, a theologian named uh, Paul Zoll. And, uh, and w- in this book, he writes what I think is one of the best definitions of grace I've ever read. Here's what he says. He says, what is grace? Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. And then he continues a little further. Grace is love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything and only to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts, whatever that might be. When you hear a definition like this about grace... Grace sounds like a miracle, doesn't it? Love that has nothing to do with me, a kind of love that throws out the weights and measures, everything in our world is built on weights and measures, isn't it? A kind of love that is not, ju- that is, uh, it is, that is not just predominantly about measuring up, but a love that is rather about something else, of course this is a kind of miracle. And of course we forget it, because it's not how we live. We don't live in a world of grace. Grace is an otherworldly, unnatural, and startling thing. And deep down, I think, most of us us doubt it. Most of us doubt the reality of grace. Because we know our own hearts, don't we? And we have lived in the world long enough to know that grace is not the default setting of this world or of my heart. Grace is not the operative principle in our current political climate, right? Grace is not the operative principle in the line at Starbucks. Grace is not how we function in the world in in nearly any way. And so we fall back on this need, this desire to justify ourselves through our ability to earn and our striving and our effort, and we forget. We forget. Which is why I think it's important that Christians intentionally cultivate eyes and ears for grace. To see it all around us. To not grow callous to the reality of God in the world. And it's why I think we need to read the scriptures as a love letter of grace from God to us. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to read, uh, read this story, the, story, the Christmas story, as seen through the eyes of Joseph, Joseph through this lens of grace and see where we can find the grace of God in the midst of this story. 
looking for examples of God's grace that comes streaming to us through the story of Jesus' birth, specifically told through the perspective of Joseph in Matthew's gospel, through the, and through the miracle, the miracle of the incarnation, which is really just a kind of miracle of grace. You know, uh, the truth of the matter is, is that the incarnation itself is probably one of the greatest pictures of grace that we have. Because the incarnation is an act of God, 100%. It is 100% God and zero us. It is love coming to us when nothing else would, when we were not even aware of it. Humanity did not provoke or cajole the incarnation in any way. The incarnation simply happened. And yet in the midst of a time of darkness and despair, a kind of light appeared. And this light is the light of the world. And the, response, and the response of nearly everyone in the story who encounters this light, who encounters this incarnation, is basically bewilderment. Wonder, yes, but bewilderment. A kind of slack-jawed amazement at the thought that something like this could even happen. No one is like, oh yeah, that, saw it coming, right? And we would do well to embrace that same posture when we see grace in the world, I think. So in this particular story, this story of Joseph's engagement with, uh, with the incarnation, of the, the story of the incarnation as seen through the eyes of Joseph, Jesus' father, where's the grace? Where's the grace? And I hope today forms is a kind of like grace booster shot for us, right? That if we've been running off, off the fuel of self-justification, if we might not, might not seen the miracle of grace as it is, as it is uh, presented itself in our lives this week, that we would maybe be realigned in a sense to see the grace of God anew this morning. So that's the hope. That's the hope. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to our teaching text in Matthew 1. Um, you know, the story of Jesus' birth as told in Matthew is different than it is in the other Gospels. Luke, as we saw last week, begins with the story of Zechariah and John the Baptist and Mary. In, John, in the Gospel of John, we get a, what really amounts to a big poem about the Logos, the Word, this incarnate Word of God who's met us. But Matthew begins the story of Jesus in a very traditional way, a way that to us seems very, very boring. He tracks Jesus, or he, tells, he begins to tell the story of Jesus' birth by tracking Jesus' family tree by giving us his genealogy. We could spend more than a week on this genealogy. It's very boring when you read it from it with modern eyes, but if you dig into it with, from a first century perspective, it's fascinating. But the point of this is that Matthew is concerned with uh, uh, telling his audience in advance who Jesus was. Jesus is a Jewish man in the line and lineage of David. Matthew wants to make clear to his audience that what is happening here through this Jesus, through this child that is about to be born, is the long-awaited promise that is coming to fruition. And Matthew does this by tracking back all the way through Jesus's family tree. Now, if you're wondering, is that exactly all of the people who lived before Jesus? You'll see a, you'll see a kind of symmetry to, uh, to that genealogy. It's um, it's, it's most certainly an artistic interpretation of Jesus's genealogy. There might be a uh, uh, some great-grandfather that got left out somewhere along the line. But Matthew makes quite clear to us that what is happening with this person, Jesus, is in the line, is in the story of what God has done before, just like we said last week. 
There is this connection to the story of God, to the faithfulness of God as it moves through time and through the story of the people of Israel, all the way down through Abraham and King David and Joseph. Now, if you're reading that genealogy, you will probably, uh, you prob- and you're familiar with any part of the Christmas story, you'll be familiar with the idea that Joseph is not Jesus' biological dad, correct? Jesus was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And I think, I think that this example of Jesus' kind of miraculous conception, not being a biological son of Joseph, but being grafted into the line or the family tree of Joseph, is maybe the first instance of grace that we see in this story. It is the grace of the incarnation. We just touched on it a second ago, but the incarnation is an act of sheer grace. None of us did anything to make it happen. It simply happened. God is a God who dwells with us, who comes to us, and and who is with us. His very name is Emmanuel, God with us, and we did nothing to deserve it. This happened before you were born, FYI. If you don't first understand the incarnation as an act of grace, you will have a hard time seeing the crucifixion of Jesus as an act of grace, actually. The fourth century uh, pastor and church father, Athanasius, put it this way. He said, in ancient times before the divine sojourn, that's his language for the incarnation, of the Savior took place, even to the saints, death was terrible. All wept for the dead as though they perished. But now that the Savior has raised his body, death is no longer terrible. For all who believe in Christ trample on it as if it were nothing and choose rather to die, die than deny their faith in Christ. And that devil that once maliciously exalted in death, now that uh, its pains were loosed, remained the only uh, one truly dead. It's kind of a cool thing. That divine sojourn, that story of Christ's incarnation, is the beginning of the truth of who Jesus is. And it is the first picture we get of a kind of grace coming to us. God in his very being, at his essence, is a God who comes to us when we were not even aware of it. And we see that specifically in this story. The second instance of grace that I think is really palpable for us in this story is Joseph's, the initial grace that Joseph shows Mary. You see, Joseph responds to Mary when he hears that she is pregnant or sees that she is pregnant. He displays a kind of grace a kind of grace that doesn't make sense within the cultural context of his day. You can pick it up in verse 19 and see this. In verse 19, it says, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. Imagine with me, you're 17, 18 years old. You've been betrothed to a young woman. You live in a small town and you know her pretty well. It's not a very big community, and about six months into your betrothal, people start going, is Mary pregnant? What's, what's that? And you're like, yeah, man, I think she's pregnant. <laughs> and you know it's not your kid, right? You know it's not. And all your life is right there. And all of your life, right before your eyes, everything you anticipated kind of falls apart in that moment. Your honor has been called into question because who probably got the young girl pregnant? Well, probably the guy that she was betrothed to, right? 
This would be the obvious choice. People most likely think you're the father. And in this day and age, Joseph had recourse. He actually had an option. The best option that he had available to him was to bring Mary before the elders of their community, before the rabbis, and hold a kind of public trial. And, when, and the, this passage alludes to it, that he didn't want to dis- expose her to public disgrace. But what would commonly happen in this day is that you would bring this person who you were accusing, all kind of courtroom type things didn't happen in a, in a courthouse, they happened at the city gates in the most visible place in the community. And so what Joseph could have done is said, Mary, you, me, the rabbi, in every, inside of everybody, let's go to the city gates and let's have a conversation about this. So before the whole community, he could have said, this is not my child. I am, I am free of this guilt and shame. And he could have taken the shame that was on him, taken it off of him in public, and put it on her. That's what he could have done. He could have divorced her publicly, literally putting the stigma, the shame uh, that he was carrying on her. And this is normal, right? This is the normal response. If you're Joseph and you know, I didn't do this. This is a sin against me, if you're Joseph, right? But he chooses not to do that. He, he makes another plan, in fact. He chooses to quietly divorce her and to protect her from public disgrace. Even though I'm sure in that moment his heart was broken. And what the text is attempting to communicate to us is that Joseph is a truly righteous person. He's a person, if you will, after God's own heart. And his heart before God is not one that requires justice for himself. Rather, he is looking for justice full stop. And he's willing to take on himself the shame of this situation so that Mary can avoid it. He will extend in this moment grace to Mary so that she does not have to be shamed publicly you know, Joseph's response is not, to vindicate, is, not, is not to vindicate himself or to carry a vengeful spirit into this uh, exchange. Rather, he has a kind of spirit of love, a sign of his righteousness, a sign of his heart after God. And how much better would our world be if this is the way we responded when we were wronged? Joseph made this decision before he ever had an, ang- an angelic visitation. And yet he chooses not to take steps that he was lawfully provided to, uh, to rectify his own reputation. He could have, and he was legally and in some ways spiritually justified in taking the shame that was on him in that moment culturally and putting it on her. And yet he chooses not to do this. And this is not the way we function, is it? This is not the way we function in our culture. If I am wronged, what do I want to do? I want to wrong the other. If someone says something about me, I say it about them. If I am wounded in some way at work, what do I do? I go about the business of wounding. I pay back what was given to me. My first and highest priority is not, is not another person's reputation, but rather my own. 
I am not willing, in general, to take, uh, to take something from myself in order to cover over someone else's wrongdoing. And yet, this is what Joseph thinks he's doing at that moment. He's extending the grace of God to Mary. We see it over and over and over again, right, in our, in our culture. If someone makes a comment about you on social media, what do you do? You fire back. If someone says something bad about whoever that you like, you say something back. If, if someone does something to you, you do it back to them because that is what justice is. But for some reason, Joseph doesn't think justice in a godly sense works that way. And he chooses to be the recipient of, of the shame. He chooses to put himself in between Mary and the shame that was, in his mind, justifiably coming her way. And in this way, he displays a kind of grace, a kind of grace that many in Joseph's culture and probably many of his friends didn't think she deserved. And yet he gives it to her. But this is not the depth of the grace that we see in this passage. Actually, the grace that is displayed by Joseph gets even more illogical than that. Because in just a moment, Joseph is about to have an angelic vision, and he's going to be asked to do something that looks even crazier from the outside than just simply, than just simply uh, divorcing Mary quietly and uh, helping her to avoid shame. Joseph is now asked by the angel, when the angel appears to him, to display an illogical level of grace by pardoning Mary entirely and marrying her. This was something that was not even allowed legally. He should not have done it. No rabbi would have advised him to do this in this day, and yet this is what he is asked to do, and he does it. If you want to pick up in the scriptures in verse 20, of chapter 1, it says this, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do, you, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Joseph not divorcing Mary in this scenario is a scandal full stop. It's a scandal. He would carry that shame the rest of his life. He was never going to get away from it. And he couldn't go around to his friends and go, guys, I know what it looks like, but it was the Holy Spirit. And they'd be like, okay, Joseph, yeah, I've heard that one before. You know, when the grace of God shows up, it is always, always accompanied by an illogical pardon. By an illogical pardon. It makes no sense that Joseph would actually marry Mary, right? That he'd actually take her as his wife. Yet the grace of God is present in this circumstance and brought an illogical, nearly silly level of grace into this scenario. You know, every time Jesus has interactions with people in the Gospels, nearly every time, when he, when he interacts with these s sinful people or sick people or people that are, that are deserving of derision or scorn, he always, in some sense, 
does something from the perspective of that day that is silly. When he pardons the woman, uh, when he functionally pardons the woman who was caught in adultery when all these men are about to stone her. This is silly. It makes no sense. She is, within the context of the day, she is fully deserving of what she is about to get. And all Jesus says is, no. Right? You cast the first stone, but what he's saying, no. And what does he say when he raises her by the hand? Neither, I, neither do I condemn you. It is a level of pardon that just doesn't even make sense to us. How could that even be right? There's no justice in this. Where's the justice? It's silly. It's nonsensical. It's grace. It's grace. And God, through the angel, asked Joseph to put on display this kind of nonsensical grace. He knew, right, from his perspective that he wasn't the father and that God had asked him to do this and that the son who Mary was carrying was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But from the outside, no one knew. No one knew. From the outside, it looked ridiculous. And yet, Joseph goes through with this silly, nearly illogical movement of grace in the story of Jesus' birth, in the story of the Incarnation. God is a God of, lo- of illogical and lavish grace. God is a God who comes to us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of all of our problems, uh, n- knowing full well all of the facts and all of the things that stack up against us. And he comes to us with an illogical and lavish grace. And this is demonstrated for us by Jesus and his willingness not just to come to us when we were tidied up and in a good state of being, right? The scriptures tell us quite clearly that Jesus came to us when we had no clue who he even was. To literally die for us on our behalf, to take the weight, to bear the cost of our sin on himself that we might escape its control and its shame. You see, in this story, Joseph is a little picture of Jesus, I think, willing to take the shame that culturally was supposed to come on Mary upon himself in order to create space for what God wanted to do. And in the same way, Jesus is willing to take the shame that is rightfully on us, unlike Mary, who didn't really do anything wrong, the shame that is rightfully on our heads is willing to step in between that reality and bear the cost, the weight, the price, if you will, of our sin, of our brokenness, of our shame. And here's the scandal of it all. It costs us nothing. It costs you and me nothing. We didn't do anything to deserve it. We didn't earn it in any way, shape, or form. And yet it happens. It happened. And like any gift, the only requirement is that you receive it. That's it. That you reach out and take it. And we don't want to do that. Because the truth of the matter is, is we don't like grace. 
I don't want to receive a free gift unless it's, <laughs> never mind. Uh, <laughs> we won't even go there. I don't want to receive a free gift. I want to earn that stuff, don't I? Don't you? And yet, before you were even aware of it, the gift of God's love was made available to you. You know, I've been struggling with this idea lately about God's grace. I don't know why I've been struggling with it. Um, I think part of it is just being, I don't know, kind of approaching middle age, I guess. And maybe that's part of it. I'm, I'm a whopping 35 years old, and it's causing an existential crisis. No. Uh, there's something true about this. As you get older, as you, especially if you're even a pastor and you live, uh, if you've lived as a Christian for as long as you can remember, the grace of God begins to kind of, you begin to forget about it in the same way that Martin, Martin Luther said. And reawakening to the reality of how much God loves you and how little you need to do to receive that grace is startling. It's like waking up to the reality of the fact that you have a spouse who loves you or something, right? It's this beautiful thing that you can, you can, that you can forget about, but that is beautiful. That is beautiful. And I was having a conversation with Ashley in the kitchen the other day. I was talking about God's grace. You know, I'm a party, you know, if you want to be married to me. Uh, you're cooking dinner, and your husband is having theological conversations with you about God's grace. And I said to her, I said, Ashley, is God's grace big enough? Like, is, is it big enough? Is it big enough? Is it big enough to forgive my stuff? Because I hadn't been feeling like it was. Full, full disclosure. And this kind of wave of love kind of rolled over me. And I was like, of course it is. Of course it is. I just forgot for a moment. I just forgot. And if, and if I'm honest with you, if I'm honest, I would think that that's probably where a lot of us are in this place today. We have forgotten in some sense about the grace of God. We've lost sight of its illogical and lavish nature. And we don't know and we don't see the ways in which it covers everything. Everything. If only we reach out and receive it. The scriptures talk about uh, the love of God that has come to us in the person of Jesus. That, that his sacrifice, his work on the cross for our sins covers our sin. It is the great love letter of all the world. It is not about whether you measure up or not. It is not about whether you've done good or bad things or not. It has nothing to do with you in that sense. It has only to do, only to do with whether or not you want to receive it this morning. And so my question, my question, where do you need to wake up to the grace of God this morning? If the band could come up, that'd be great. Where do you need to wake up to the grace of God this morning? 
Maybe you've been in that cycle of justification, trying to justify yourself, trying to work to make God love you, trying to work to, ma to make sure that you see yourself as some type of a good person, which is futile. Let me, let, let me tell you, it's not going to work. You've been trying to do things. You've been investing energy in order to try to, uh, energy in order to, for self just, purposes of self-justification. And you need to wake up to the grace of God this morning and know that there is no amount of work that you can do to justify yourself. Without the grace of God, the scales will always be tipped against you. But with this lavish grace of God that comes towards us before we even knew we needed it, the scales are leveled out because of God's grace, because of his love. Maybe you've been trying to justify yourself through grades, right? This is finals week, right? Maybe you've been trying to justify yourself by being a good parent, right? Do you ever... <laughs> Sometimes I'll, when I put Elliot down at night, I'll say, Elliot, am I a good dad? <laughs> Just because I know I want to hear him say, you're a great dad, <laughs> right? <laughs> Trying to justify myself. Maybe you've been on this experiment of self-justification and it's not working. And you need to receive the grace of God as a loving gift, knowing that there is nothing you need to do to earn it this morning. Maybe you're in this place and you're, you're, you're carrying guilt and shame, right? You just carry a level of guilt, a constant kind of level of guilt and shame with you wherever you go. It weighs you down. You're just not convinced. Maybe intellectually you are, but in the, in the truth of your heart, you're just not convinced that the grace of God is enough. That it covers that thing that you did. That, that it's enough for you. You might, you just don't believe it. And this morning you need to wake up afresh to the grace of God that covers everything. Everything. And maybe you're in this place this morning and you've never received the grace of God. You've never looked to the person of Jesus to forgive your sins. You've never given your life over to him. You've never accepted the free gift of God's grace in the person of Jesus. And this morning, what you need to do is just accept it and know that there is a loving God in heaven. That he is for you. The entire trajectory of his divine life is towards you. And there is nothing, not a single thing you did to earn it. You just have to receive it. You just have to receive it. That's all. That's all you have to do. Would you stand with me this morning as we conclude? In just a moment, we're going to call the prayer team forward. A couple of our prayer team members will come up. We want to make some, we want to make we want to create a little space here where we can worship God together and we can respond to God's word. But just in the quietness of our hearts right here, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to ask the question. If you're in this place this morning and you have never or not or recently forgotten, you've never experienced the grace of God in the person of Jesus, or you have walked away from the, this idea that the grace of God is a present reality for you, if you fall into one of those categories this morning, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. 
And so if you're in, the, in this place this morning and you say, Pastor Nick, I need the grace of God. I want to reach out. I want to reach out this morning and I want to receive it as the grace it is. Would you just raise your hand? respond to the uh, to God. Uh, the, we'll have some prayer team members available for you if you want to pray. If you want somebody to partner with you this morning for any reason, anything you're carrying, they'd be glad to pray with you. Father, we love you. And we thank you so much for this one-way love that is the grace of God. We thank you that you came to us when we were not deserving. We were not even, uh, we were not even alive when you did this, God. And yet the grace of God still streams to us in a way that we can't even understand or explain. Father, I pray specifically for those in this place who raise their hand, that they would have an intense encounter with the love and grace of God this morning, that they would give their lives fully over to the person of Jesus, and that they would experience the love of God in the face of Christ in a way that they've never experienced it before. And that, that as they continue on this this journey of understanding and experiencing the grace of God through the person of Jesus, that there would just be a continual level, this, uh, this constant dependence on the sheer, beautiful grace of God. And I pray for all of us in this place who maybe have been asleep like me to the grace of God in our midst. Would we all, in some real and true sense, see it? Would we wake up to it? Would we experience the grace of God in a way that we never knew needed to, but in a way that makes all the difference. And so, Lord Jesus, as we commit these next few moments to you, we just pray that you would impact us, that you would, you would be present with us by your spirit, communicating your grace and your love to us this morning. Would you meet us here? Would you meet us here? We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen prayer team would come forward on either side here. They'll be available to pray with you.